0: In this special episode of the Ideas Between the Lines podcast, Stephen Thompson and Mariah Cannon interview Professor Robert Chambers, who is one of the most influential and prolific scholars to write about participation, poverty, and knowledge in development studies. For years, international development has traditionally been dominated by experts in the global north, telling poor people in the global south how their lives could be improved. Robert's writing and thinking, however, revolutionized the discipline, inspiring both participatory processes And a more inclusive practice. Released to coincide with the publication of the New IDS Bulletin, Power, Poverty and Knowledge, reflecting on 50 years of learning with Robert Chambers, the interview looks back on Robert's career over five decades of publishing in the Bulletin and how his research has changed over the years. His work continues to inspire and provoke debate and discussion among development practitioners, activists and academics from around the world.
1: My name's Stephen Thompson and I'm here with my colleague mariah cannon and we we have the great pleasure in speaking to Professor Robert Chambers, our colleague and our friend um, as part of this um, bulletin archive issue looking back at some of the articles Robert's written over the years so firstly Robert and what's keeping you busy these days
2: what's exciting um, well i'm I'm at, at my age you tend to become autobiographical <laughs> it's um uh, uh, something that just happens i think almost inevitably so i'm i'm um, digging into some past things particularly time that i spent in kenya um between 58 and 66 which was in, independence in the middle and i was a district officer and then i was a trainer I was a decolonizer. Very, we were very conscious about decolonizing. It was a thrilling time.
3: And what do you think makes the IDS Bulletin different uh, or unique from other development-oriented publications?
2: Uh, speed of publication uh, is the, I think, a lot of the comparative advantage of the bulletin, and. Uh, the more you go in for referees and all that which the bulletin feels obliged or those who manage it feel obliged to do um, the the less it, it has that comparative advantage i I really like that when as it as it has been a lot of the time you submit something or it comes out of some workshop or whatever. And then it's it's out quite quickly, whereas other journals, mm. they can be three four years, and you can have endless refereeing. I mean, one of the things that is, is really not recognised adequately, I think, in our field, <laughs> is the the cost um, in terms of demotivation, in terms of delay in terms of out of dateness by the time something comes out of all this business of having referees and then having to change things and it, it, I, the pathology of this which i've come across is that you have to change everything you change it they send it back to the same referees three which is one too many anyway um, and and then they make a whole other pile or they say that uh, suggestions or they say that <laughs> they say that um, uh, you know, it's, they, they raise new questions, let me put it like that.
3: And perhaps I can actually ask a follow-up question if that's okay. Yeah. So I think it, it may be fairly obvious for some of us why, you know, having uh, rapid outputs is advantage, is an advantage. But could you say, in your words, why that is such an advantage to prevent, you know, those two, three-year delays. Yes.
2: Well, it's absolutely, it's really frustrating, particularly if you've got something that you feel is important, worth saying. Um, Empirically based recently, it's very, very frustrating to be held up. Mm. And, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I would look around and see where there's a journal that will publish quickly.
3: I think this reflects very strongly on um, what, for me personally, I've always thought has been a great focus of your work um, and perhaps doesn't need elucidating here, but the idea of practice, you know, I think at IDS, you know, development practitioners Mm. versus development academics. Mm. And for practitioners, it's essential that what we learn um, is shared quickly mm. because you want it to be actionable yes. but if it's shared mm. three years later it may no longer be relevant because yes. context changed so quickly
2: I absolutely agree with that um, absolutely I, th- I think that what you can call ground truthing mm. is pretty vital in our fields and this means having had or somebody having had direct face-to-face, um, on-site experience of what it is that they're writing about. <clears throat> if there isn't ground-truthing there, then it belongs perhaps somewhere else.
3: In a d- yeah. It would
2: be strong for the bulletin to to, um, to to have among its criteria. Perhaps it does that. Um, Anything, anything will be um, welcomed uh, <clears throat> for consideration if it's based on grounded experience and recent grounded experience and then is published fast. Because this, this delay in learning, which is built into our knowledge system and our knowledge politics, if you like, um, is, a, is a disadvantage. You want stuff which is really, really up to date. And and the best stuff nowadays, of course, a lot of the good stuff circulates on email or podcasts or in other ways which bypass the bulletin because and, and the more immediate ways of communicating. And that maybe is something that the bulletin should consider.
3: What's quite interesting is we might be making a complementary, if not counterintuitive argument with our archive bulletin edition, right? But I think something that this archive edition has, um, rather than just reprinting old bulletin articles, right, over the course of your Mm. career, um, there's been quite a lot of thought in how those uh, topics and themes are still relevant today Mm. and in new ways and in different contexts. Mm. Um, So maybe... If you don't mind, we could move on to the questions about how some of those, uh, you know, what we might say, older knowledge mm. is still really relevant.
2: Mm.
1: Mm. So one of the one of the themes that we felt emerged from the collection of articles was around the importance of local knowledge. Yes. Um, and now the the argument about whether local knowledge is useful or not, I, I feel, has largely been. One and that local knowledge is accepted mm. as as important, but what isn't quite as clear ha- is how the local knowledge ends up influencing how uh, decisions around development processes are, mm. are made. And there seems like a disconnect there, which continues. Some of which I feel like is perhaps due to um, the academic model and some of the issues you were saying there about delay around publishing, but also, you know, academia is largely dominated by the West. So my question to you is how can we ensure, knowing how knowing how important local knowledge is, how can we ensure that it's used effectively in development mm. processes?
2: It's a big challenge, isn't it? Um <clears throat> and it also relates to how relevant to practice the knowledge is. Mm. And uh in, in that connection I think One misleading idea is that if everything is decentralised, I mean, in other words, it's not dominated by West or Western countries, donors and all the rest of it, it will somehow be better grounded. Well, that may or may not be the case, because to be grounded and well-grounded really, most of the time, requires funding. And again and again, it's the funders who need to have a change of mindset and change of priorities and a change of their search processes or their bidding processes or whatever it is which lead to them uh, devoting funds to research. So if it's a question of change of mindset, the funders, funders and those those who, who support them, Because if you look at the power structures and decision structures, are there people behind the funders even?
3: That, I think, leads on very well to the next question. Um, I'm going to read it out, but perhaps add more if I've missed anything. But it says, uh, in your article, Bureaucratic Reversals and Local Diversity, you argue that powerful people and based on what we've been talking about in this case, it could be funders, but it could be other powerful people, do not readily readily relinquish power. Um, so if this problem is common across humanity, and I think it's a problem that we could argue very easily still exists today, as much <laughs> as it existed when you wrote this article, um, is change through development processes and interventions interventions possible and if so how
2: the the personal dimension is central to answering this question seems to me um individually there may be people who want power but what sort of power is it well they may be enjoying what sort of what sort of what sort of power and you you know the 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 four types of power power to. Power. With. With. Power over. Which is the first one. Mm. Power to. Power with. And. Um, what's the fourth one?
3: Power within.
2: Power within. But you see there's a fifth one. Mm. And this is. A, a roundabout way of getting to answering your question. <laughs> and that's power to empower. That's. You don't find it. And yet, um, when you think of it, many people who are uppers in situations, they have a lot of power to empower. One of their powers, which is a power which affects all all of us in in many ways, and IDS, incidentally, is is in a very strong position here. It is power to empower. And, And if you convene... Sorry, it's power to... Power to convene, which... It, <laughs> I got it the wrong way around. It's power to convene. Convening power, which means you can bring people together who collectively will empower themselves and decide on things which should happen and maybe change their own understandings, their own actions and so on. So um, a lot of this, though, comes back to individuals and how they behave. And power is not necessarily a nice thing to have it depends on the situation I mean with power comes responsibility and um, <clears throat> many people might perhaps prefer not to have responsibility in, in particular situations but <clears throat> one question for individuals and also for for training for education all the rest of it can you um Individually, as a person, take pleasure in empowering other people rather than exercising power yourself. If we had more people who were in that space and actually took satisfaction in empowering other people, we'd be doing better, I think. But after all, teachers, they do this they empower their pupils and then their pupils go off and then the teachers can take a lot of pleasure in what those pupils do later in life. So we've already got it on a massive scale um, in our societies. It's not something new, but it's something which could be spread and adopted more widely by development professionals.
3: Something that I believe you and I have spoken about before Or, I'm making that up that we've spoken about it, but I've definitely read something of yours um, that I think speaks to this around the idea that, you know, power is often seen as a basic addition-subtraction equation. When in reality, giving power to someone else doesn't necessarily mean that you have to lose power. And in this way, I think that's maybe what you're adding or alluding to in a way that you can empower um, mm. in ways which, you know, create more collective power.
2: Mm. Yes. And if you if you empower other people, it doesn't necessarily imply that you're disempowering yourself. It's not a zero sum. It's a positive sum. And I uh, well, if you like, it is. It is better it's best if it's a positive sum and it can be and part of the struggle is to find ways in which it can almost always be positive sum Mm
1: -hmm. win-win rather than zero sum that's
2: right win-win
1: um and linked to that so i appreciate what you're saying in terms of the importance of individuals and their influence but as well within the development Um, infrastructure you have the the systems or the 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 departments and so on Um, and in the article the self-deceiving state you talk about how normal government development bureaucracy is resiliently static and robustly buffered against change has your view on on that changed over time is yes, it less so
2: or more so now. Um, yes, I, I I think robustly buffered is a bit strong <laughs> <laughs> for the reality. I, I think there's, um, there's there's quite a good um, flexibility now. I don't know why my view has changed on this, but I, but I would <clears throat> hope it's because the reality has changed.
3: Are you more I don't, optimistic
2: not I, I, I don't have the impression of the sort of conservatism that I was fighting against then. Mm. But maybe that's because I've stopped fighting.
3: I wouldn't say you've stopped fighting,
1: but <laughs> maybe.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, one of the things we noticed in general about your approach and your writing is that you, you are, in general, quite optimistic. Hmm. Um, so, for example, in All Power Deceives you talk about um, development professionals having the potential to empower people um, and that if that happens then development interventions might better match practical realities. How do you balance staying optimistic while at the same time being
2: critical of development? I think optimism can be, um, to some degree, some of the time, but more often than we recognise, self-fulfilling if you're optimistic and you go into a situation which is a difficult situation with your optimism, it may um, rub off on other people. It may influence um, the way things go, say, in a discussion. Um, I I think um, I think the way we behave in situations is It's it's not something that we talk about it's 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 one of those subjects you know it's the elephant in the room it's it, it's it's ev- it's everywhere how we interact and how we influence one another and where our discussions go and so on um these these are all things which really really matter almost more than anything else and yet my impression is that they're not a central Discussion as they ought to be. But it's partly, I suppose, that it's a bit threatening to go back to square one and sort of say, well, you know, what the f- are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> what, what is this all about? What's the justification? And, and, and we need to ask those questions. But I think the optimism is really, really important that even as you ask those questions, you know that you're going to come out of it saying, yes, we've got to do this, we've got to do but that you're optimistic that there will be a good outcome. And if you're optimistic that there will be a good outcome, there probably will be. But if you're pessimistic and, oh, isn't it terrible, blah, 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 well, then things do become a bit more terrible. <coughs> so I believe in self-fulfilling fantasies. <laughs> so
1: slightly linked to that. One of the other features we noticed very much about your writing is that you, you regularly question yourself and your approach and, you know, mm. reflexivity is really at the at the heart of your writing. Um, how important do you think reflexivity is today to someone working in development studies or perhaps just getting into the industry?
2: Very. I think it's fundamental. I think it, it's important for everybody. But it's easy to say that when you're sort of... Um, in a position that I'm in now it's easy to say that but for someone who's starting out on their career if they're very reflexive and self-critical this may actually harm them so you can be self-critical without self-harming but you must not self-harm so you can keep your self-criticism even to yourself Mm -hmm. to a diary for instance without necessarily exposing yourself and your view of your own failings and blah, blah, um, to everybody else. And, and and to enjoy it. I mean, enjoying reflexivity. Enjoy catching yourself out and saying, Oh my goodness, look how I was behaving, <laughs> for goodness sake. <laughs>
1: That's probably, speaking for both Mariah and myself, I, I think that's say. probably very, very useful <laughs> advice for two fairly early career researchers.
3: Absolutely. Um, it's definitely
1: something we can do more of.
3: You can get caught in the trap of questioning absolutely everything you mm, do. Mm. And in some cases, it leads to kind of immobility or yes, yes. stasis because you just question and question and question. Yes, um, absolutely. So it's helpful to hear from someone who's come through Mm. the other side perhaps that there is a a way to do it while still moving forward but Mm. being reflexive.
2: I think um, you need, as it were, a dialogue between positive practitioners. I I used to characterize it. Practitioners tend to be positive Mm. and academics tend to be negative. Okay, They've both got their strengths but they need to interact in a way which comes out energised rather than dispirited
3: (laughs) and maybe that's something that the bulletin helps us do because I think you know as a practitioner slash academic academic journal it does create spaces for Mm. that kind of interchange of information
1: going back slightly to talking about themes one of the other features we noticed about the writing was and not just in your bulletin articles, but also in your books and other articles, mm. is um, the, the focus on um, rural uh, dwelling or yes. people living in rural areas yes. that's been fairly consistent over over time. So, for example, in your article "In Search of Professionalism, Bureaucracy, and Sustainable Livelihoods for the Twenty First Century," um, you, know, you make it very clear that the focus has to be on on rural um, people, mm. rural lives. Mm. Um, do you think development should still
2: focus on rural dwelling and why? I think it's shifted. The reality has shifted. That's to say, if you look, if you go back 40 years and you say what proportion of people in developing countries live in rural areas and what are in urban, and you look at those proportions, and then you look now and find a very different picture. And so I would um, downplay the rural, and every time almost every time I've written rural, I would um, sort of cross out, or I would put in, and urban. And one of the criticisms, very valid criticism that can be made of my work, is that it's neglected urban property. And uh, I mean, I don't know anything about urban poverty, uh, compared with, I mean, um, let me put it, I am, even more ignorant about <laughs> urban poverty than I am about rural. I think so, so for you know, for for future generations, urban poverty is very much something to look at.
3: I think something that's very interesting about that, and I speak from very limited experience. So take everything I say with quite a generous pinch or tablespoon of salt, but. My experience working with urban populations and kind of the very poorest of the urban populations is actually those that are most marginalized in urban settings are recent migrants from rural Mm. settings in which livelihoods were impossible to maintain Mm. in a rural setting. And so they have migrated to the urban setting looking for economic opportunities Mm. and um the ability to support their family and so i do wonder if a continued focus on the rural might actually prevent some of the Mm. urban poverty as well Mm. but i don't i don't i don't know if that was something that you experienced as well when you were working you know in rural settings if you were seeing that the out migration because livelihood strategies weren't working in mm. rural settings. It
2: was part of the justification for the focus on rural
3: mm-hmm.
2: poverty was to reduce migration to urban centers But exactly the reasons that you've given. Um, and I think that may well still be the case, but I am a bit out of touch and out of date on these things now. And I do recognize that they change quite rapidly
1: perhaps one of the biggest changes um has been around technology and i i remember being in a fairly rural area in mozambique and a taxi driver laughing at me because his phone was more advanced than mine <laughs> <laughs> um, and so i and i know not everyone would necessarily benefit from the, the the technology available but do you think have you got any reflections on how technology might have influenced um people living in rural areas and some of the development challenges that they
2: I think it's been transformative Um, I should imagine that most rural households in the developing world have got a mobile phone and I mean that is an absolutely phenomenal change in terms of uh, connection being in touch and up to date no the, tech, the, the impact of the changes in technology have been, I think, massive and probably still underappreciated. I've not been keeping up with the publications and so on, but it would be nice, maybe this is a subject for an IDS bulletin <laughs> um, the impact of um, technological developments on rural life. I remember about 10 years ago, going back to Sambura district, where I, where I worked in the um, 60s, and being astonished that there were these um, uh, telephone charging points <laughs> um, all over the place. Uh, and, and people were just very connected. It's a different world. Mm it really is and it was not foreseen I think at least not by me and I don't know where it goes next
1: you regularly acknowledge others in your work as a source of inspirational creativeness for example you acknowledge the idea of uppers and lowers um, which was developed from a conversation with Jenny your wife how important is this for your writing process
2: oh it is important I think being able to have conversations about what you're working on um, is a a wonderful opener of doors and um, opportunities to see things with a different perspective. When you're talking, you're thinking in a different sort of way. I I can't explain it, but I, I know that if I'm having a conversation with someone, then things can come out it's a process. A conversation is a process. And you don't know exactly where it's going, but you do know that it's people are participating in it. Um, and that can be very crea- creative in the sense of uncovering insights uh, which otherwise would not have been in the light.
1: Um, one of the other things I found interesting about your writing is that quite often you acknowledge people who have read an early draft or even perhaps that you've had conversations with mm-hmm. while you're writing it. Is that is that something that you'd encourage other people to do?
2: Yes. And also encourage them to acknowledge if they if they can. You can't always. You don't know where ideas came from. You They're just suddenly... You've got them. They may not originate with you. They may originate with somebody else. And... Uh, they, they might feel annoyed although no one's ever come up to me that I can recollect and say you pinched my idea
1: <laughs> hopefully they won't, but... <laughs> they won't.
2: Um, although I I have and being, being a being a, a bit of a magpie hopping mm. around and picking up bits here and there and then, you know a scavenger if you like I mean you can be an intellectual scavenger and uh, I think that's a, a quite a good thing to do an explorer and a scavenger so we've talked quite a lot about
1: the 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 past and you know drawing on some of your ideas from your bulletins and elsewhere what do you think the next 50 years of the bulletin should focus on what are the enduring questions that development needs to address
2: well yes but, i mean the first thing is to say that just because um, an earlier bulletin has dealt with the subject It's not a reason for abstaining from taking that subject further. This is really important. Um, we should never have this seen that seen this, done this, tick, move on. <clears throat> I don't think so. I think you can put a tick, yes, we've got so far, but these processes tend to be circular. Learning processes tend to be circular and we need to be prepared to go around in circles and to revisit and go beyond where we were in the past. So part of my answer to your question about where things should go is they should look at the past. Um, they should look for gaps. They should look for biases and blind spots. I think biases and blind spots are, are a... A sort of springboard, if you like. I don't think we do enough of this. Um, asking what What are my biases? What are, What do I prefer to see? Prefer to learn about? What do I choose to study and choose not to study, and why? That sort of reflexivity we need much more of. Um, and <clears throat> it's exciting because if you find a blind spot and you say, "Oh wow, God!" It looks as though nobody else has. Has had a go at this, or or they they've missed this, and and then you get excited, and you you may genuinely be exploring um, into into new into new territory with all the excitement and the unexpected aha's, which go with that. And um, if if you don't have aha's in your research life, something must be wrong. <laughs>
3: Perhaps we could, I don't know, turn it around and ask if you have any questions.
2: Well, I'm always interested in where things are going and where they could go. And I wonder what you feel about that. Um, If you were in 10 years' time, or even 5 years' time, looking back on now, and asking yourself, well, what's changed since then? And what did we miss (coughs) then that we now see as really, really important? And I wonder whether, in, in our fields, whether we spend enough time reflecting on what we're missing. I mean, what are our blind spots? What are our biases? You know... Why don't we have a workshop and brainstorm about all this? Do we do enough in brainstorming workshops? We used to do a, f- a fair amount, and they tended to be very, very fruitful um, <clears throat> you know there are there are whole books which have come out of um, of brainstorming workshops that that we've that we've had in the past and I don't know are they do, do they happen now? Is funding sufficiently flexible that you can you can ask for funding for a brainstorming workshop? I rather doubt it. And it's very sad if that is the case. And so maybe one needs to work on the mindsets and understanding about, about knowledges on the part of the funders. It comes back again to the funders. But it's difficult for a funder, isn't it? I've been a funder with the Ford Foundation in India. And um, you have this sort of sense that you, you want to make sure that the money is well spent and that you have something to show for it at the end. And the question then is, does that inhibit you so that you, you don't do the adventurous thing? You don't take the risks, and you can ask, well, if we haven't had any failures, what's wrong? For goodness sake, we should have had some failures. Are we just following on in the old ruts? Because if we get out of the ruts, we're, we're allowed to fall over into another one or something mm-hmm. will go, go, go wrong. But maybe we need more of that. Maybe an annual report should say, here are the things that we have failed on this year. And this is what we're doing as a result
1: one of the things I, I i i feel you're saying is that the you know the coming together um that human connection is perhaps undervalued by mm. funders um and and it, it is it is a challenge in a world where you know every penny needs to be accounted for and so on mm. that and of course not every coming together is going to be successful but in other cases it could be incredibly successful it could be game changing mm. um i wonder how we reach the point where more human interaction can be funded um, yeah.
2: and what that might look like going forward I, I, I think the word workshop is, is a useful umbrella for hiding all sorts of things and many workshops um, have been fairly open ended and as I mentioned earlier have led to books, mm. oh, books whose voice um, who changes um, another of the participation books; uh, the, these have come out of workshops. Hmm.
1: The myth of community, I think that was. Myth of you wrote The myth the of absolutely,
2: you've got it. The myth yeah. of community, which is the the one about gender, about hmm. women. Um, that came out of a, of a of a workshop, and in in a, an open ended workshop situation, people also get to know one another. In in new ways and to see and understand one well another in, in new ways and that's i think very important so i i would i would say dress it up as a workshop and and there's this thing i do you know about sosa yes sosa self-organizing systems on the edge of chaos and i mean this is a very very creative zone you know, between, if you, if you look, look at it as a, as a spectrum, you, you've got a spectrum between um, rigid um, mechanistic formality and predictability here, and you've got utter chaos and unpredictability over here. But in the middle, where these two are, are kind of overlapping and there's all sorts of uncertainty, that's the zone of creativity. And we need more of that zone of creativity, where, where you, you're not sure where you're going. You're not sure about anything, really. But you, you've got a sense of purpose in the sense that you're, you're searching and that there's a collegiality in it as well.
3: One of the most productive three hours or so that I've been a part of recently has been a collective analysis workshop Because like you were saying, it's an opportunity to have conversations. And it's an opportunity for lots of people to have many different conversations with each other. And um, the power of getting 20 people in a room Mm. to look at a couple pieces of information and have discussions about it and bring in their experience, bring in their knowledge, bring in um, their... Uh, understanding of the context mm. led to results that I don't think an individual could have ever gotten mm. to. Um, so yes, yeah, completely agree with you. But I, I, I do think there's a real challenge to to find um, time and mm. funding for things like that these yeah. days. And
2: and self confidence. And self confidence. You need to be self confident that you can you can have. The edge of chaos, mm. and to have the edge of chaos, you have to be confident um, that it's worth going along this route. And the 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 form that Sosatek takes can is something itself which is unknowable, but there are dimensions of it, like seating arrangements, um, how the how a room is organised. Mm. You know, it should be organised so that all sorts of different things happen. Or can happen if people want to, them to happen so that if you if you've got you know three of you and you say we 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 really want to discuss this let's go and discuss this there's somewhere where you can sit down and you can do that and to hell with everybody else we're just doing our thing and they're doing their thing and then it it, it um it moves around um, and people come and go i I love that and it's very very creative and we don't do Nearly enough of it. In fact, we don't train people in because train, it's not really training, is it? It's um, well, it's socialize almost people. It's so socialised into this way of being and interacting, which can then be so very um, creative. I, I fear that that's been largely lost. I don't know. I, I like the, the concept. I don't know if you've come across it of optimal unpreparedness. <laughs>
3: Know of optimal ignorance, but not optimal unpreparedness.
2: Optimal unpreparedness. In other words, if you prepare too much for something, then you get stuck with what you prepared, and you feel, oh, I've got to cover that bit. I've got to cover that bit. When actually the conversation, and the really exciting stuff has moved off in another direction. Mm-hmm. That's what happens if you overplan.
3: Did you have any kind of immediate thoughts? or reflections, actually, when you saw the list of your contributions to the bulletin?
2: I was surprised. Um, and then I recognised that they have been going at it for really quite a long time. <laughs> and so one shouldn't be so, so surprised. Um, I think I had, I mean, part of my, my feeling about it is, is, is just sheer gratitude. um, I've been amazingly fortunate in my life. Um, I've had the privilege... Well, I mean, Jenny has been just extraordinarily... um, Well, intellectually uh, stimulating um, and supportive all the way through this. And I've had a series of bosses who've just said, oh, get on with your thing, and haven't breathed down my neck. And most people never, never had that. And so i when you look at all these things that you're looking at, I think you need, at the back of your mind, to recognise that this was possible because a whole series of bosses or people, people with money um, put some money aside and said, get on with it, do your thing. In fact, just before you came, I had a phone call from Rosalind Aben. Yes. You know, I had a phone call from Rosalind, who and we're going, we're going to meet again. She funded me in India. She may not admit it, but she did. <laughs> well, she part, it was only part, part of the funding. Um, but time after time, I've been in a situation in which I'm funded, Nobody quite knows what i meant to be doing. For two years, I was at the Administrative Staff College in Hyderabad, in India. And I, they didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> and that was the time when PRA was developing. And there were these wonderful NGOs. So I spent my time with the wonderful NGOs. And nobody at, at ASCII minded. Um, so that was this sort of, this sort of freedom...
3: I think one of my reflections on looking over kind of the breadth of time for which you've been involved in, in this field and the contributions you've made to it is um, that it's still relevant, right? It was relevant then and you've continued um, to be relevant. And I think sometimes certain ideas come about and they fade away and the person who contributed that idea kind of gets stuck in the past as well and I was wondering in your opinion what has allowed you um, to stay relevant and stay as you were saying I think reflexive in a way that has allowed you to be relevant
2: um you know, there's a test, which you, it's not a test, really, but it's an activity, an exercise that you can do, where you draw a circle, and then you draw lots of circles around the circle. And in the circles around the circle, you, you, you put, um, who, who am I? You see, and you can say father, um, researcher, um, Man or woman or whatever. and you you put these all the way round that give you your identity, and then you look at it all and you say, "Well, what word or words go into the circle in the middle what's what's the core of what you are and 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 um well, when I did that, <laughs> the word I wrote in the middle was Explorer and, and that explain. I mean it, it doesn't explain exactly but it it captures everything I think that is important to me exploring is just great great fun whatever you're exploring it can be exploring a relationship it can be exploring a book um, it can be exploring by writing um, any number of things it can be but Explorer so you do that when you go back and, and see what, 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 you, what you are, what word you put in. And there's no copyright on exploring. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Those are some really useful final thoughts and also some good homework for us to take away <laughs> and for us to do <laughs> and, um, at a later date. So just to say again, Robert, thank you very much for your time today and um, we'll look forward to speaking to
0: you in the future. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a feature that you would like to appear in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk.